Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a、uh, family. Number one,、uh, my parents. Let me be specific. Hi, and welcome to Hometown. I'm Allison Duval, and I'm Kendall Martin. This is a bonus episode after the end of season one. So, in the last week, there's been a lot of exciting news because Presiding Bishop Michael Curry, the Presiding Bishop of the Episcopal Church, preached at the royal wedding. So, we wanted to release a bonus episode, both that's a flashback to our Palm Sunday episode where Bishop Curry was our reflection author, and also wanted to include for you some content from this past episode's interview guest, Letizia Mizero Hellerud. If you've already listened to the last episode of season one in our interview with Letizia, this is a great opportunity to learn more about Burundi. And if you haven't listened yet, then you can go ahead and listen to this backgrounder, and then we invite you to go back and listen to the last episode of season one. We'll start with Bishop Curry's reflection from Palm Sunday and go straight into Letizia's backgrounder on Burundi. A reading from the Passion According to Saint Luke. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, "Father, into your hands I commend my spirit." And having said this, he breathed his last. Into your hands I commend my spirit. It was the ancient tradition. That young children received their earliest education in the faith of Judaism, learning the Psalms as the hymns of Israel, usually from their mother. And it may well be that Jesus, in these last moments of his earthly life, remembered what his mother had taught him. For these words are nothing less than the words of the thirty-first Psalm. Probably taught to Jesus by Mary. In the Psalm it reads, "In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame, for in your righteousness deliver me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. For into your hands I commend my spirit, and you have redeemed me." O Lord, faithful God, it may well be that Jesus, dying, remembered what his mother taught him, remembered the deepest prayer that was on his heart, and he called up that memory to lead him and guide him. Into Thy hands, I commend my spirit. In the twentieth century, there was a man named Thomas Dorsey. He was a Christian pastor, but he was also a hymn writer. He was married, and deeply loved his wife. She was pregnant, and about to give birth. And unfortunately, there were complications to the birth. And in those days, medical care was not what it is today. And she died giving birth, both she and the child. In his grief. He remembered these words of the psalmist, and he wrote the words of a hymn—a hymn that was a favorite hymn of Martin Luther King. A hymn that Dr. King, moments before 
he was assassinated. Looked down and saw one of the musicians who was due to play at the church service that night. And Dr. King said to him, I want you to play Precious Lord, the words that were written by Thomas Dorsey after his wife and child died. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm lorn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me on. No matter what comes, no matter what life may bring, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In good days and bad, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And trusting in God and leaving our lives there, we can live our lives facing whatever may come our way. God love you. God bless you. And may God hold us all in those almighty hands of love. Amen. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am tired, I am weak. And Hello, Amahoro, peace. My name is Leticia Mizero Hellerud, and I'm honored to provide background information for my native country of Burundi. Before I start, I would like to reference episode 3 in this podcast, which provides a backgrounder for Rwanda, the country directly north of Burundi. This backgrounder was recorded by Reverend Father Jean-Baptiste Nhagengwa. Burundi and Rwanda have many things in common. From the two languages, Kirundi from Burundi and Kinyarwanda from Rwanda, which could easily pass for cousins, to breathtaking landscapes alternating from tall mountains, hills, valleys, plateaus, lakes, plains, and everything majestic in between, 
that God has created. Burundi and Rwanda also share the makeup of their populations in terms of ethnic groups, namely the Twa, Tutsi, and Hutu people. Unfortunately, these two countries also share a history of cycles of violence between Tutsis and Hutus. As Father Jean-Baptiste Nhagengwa eloquently and rightfully stated for the case of Rwanda, the cycles of violence in Burundi are also far more complex than ethnic-based. I have to commend Father Nhagengwa for his, in my opinion, objective account of facts which has regrettably proven not to be consistent between people describing the evolution of the political and social climates leading into wars and genocides in Rwanda or in Burundi. Listening to both episodes three and four from my perspective as a refugee from Burundi, meaning someone who has directly been affected by the cycles of violence in Burundi, again, very comparable in essence to what has happened in Rwanda over the years, I have to praise Father Jean-Baptiste Nhagengwa for his fearlessness in assessing the past, but also in expressing his doubts with regards to the leadership currently in place in his native country of Rwanda. Given the fact that many people, regardless of where they are in the world or their citizenship status, have been hunted and killed for speaking their truth, when the latter contradicts the messages spread by the current administration in Rwanda, Jean-Baptiste's courage is simply outstanding. I would urge the listeners of this episode to supplement my content with the information provided in episodes 3 and 4 by Father Jean-Baptiste Nagengwa for more depth and width. Next, let's talk about the chronology of historical and political key events in my native Burundi. As I said earlier, Burundi is inhabited by three ethnic groups. The Hutus or Bahutu are the majority at approximately 85% of the population, followed by the Tutsis or Batutsi at roughly 14%, and the Twas or Batwa representing 1% or less. I would like to emphasize the fact that these percentages are an estimate and have fluctuated over the years. However, given the large margin in these figures, one can safely assume that the Tutsi ethnic group has always been outnumbered by the Hutu ethnic group in Burundi. With 27,830 square kilometers, Burundi is a little smaller than the state of Maryland. The population is very dense and is estimated at over 10 million. Due to its size, its location on the map, and perhaps because of its shape, Burundi claims to be the heart of Africa. Kirundi and French are the two official languages. Kiswahili is also spoken almost exclusively in urban areas of the bigger cities. English is taught in schools as a mandatory course. 
So now let's talk more about the population of Burundi and how the Hutus, Tutsis and Twas came to this area. History attests that these groups settled in Burundi in three distinct phases. The Twa people are believed to have been the original dwellers, and the Hutu people arrived before and around the 1300s, followed by the Tutsi settlers in the 1400s. Historic evidence also show that a distinct Burundian kingdom emerged in the 1500s. The first explorers to have been documented as the earliest to travel to Burundi were two British men, Richard Burton and John Speck, in 1858. When first described by Europeans, and in particular by Speck, it is assumed that the distinction between Tutsi and Hutu is entirely racial. But this simple classification is blurred by intermarriage between the Bahutu and the Batutsi mainly, and by a custom that allowed people to become honorary members of the other group. A more valid description of the Tutsi-Hutu divide is by class and occupation. The Batutsi are considered to be wealthier and mostly herdsmen. The Bahutu are considered to be less better off and for the most part live by farming. In 1890, the kingdoms of Urundi, which will later become Burundi, and neighboring Rwanda are incorporated into German East African colonies as one country. Germany lost these colonies after World War I, and Belgium received the League of Nations mandate to administer Rwanda-Urundi starting in 1923, although the Belgian army had occupied the area since 1916, right after World War I. The League of Nations will later become the United Nations. In 1959, Burundi saw the influx of Tutsi refugees from Rwanda following ethnic violence there. 1959 also marks the beginning of the independence movement led by the Upona party of Prince Louis Ruagasore. The party wins the 1961 legislative elections. Prince Louis becomes prime minister but is assassinated shortly afterwards. After the disestablishment of the League of Nations and World War II, Rwanda-Urundi becomes a trust territory of the United Nations, still under Belgian control. In 1962, the mandate becomes independent, Urundi is separated from Rwanda and becomes the independent kingdom of Burundi under King Mwambutsa IV. Thousands of Hutus flee to Rwanda following ethnic conflicts. Thousands more die during the same conflicts. In 1965, King Mwambutsa refuses to appoint a Hutu prime minister after Hutus win a majority in parliamentary elections. Then there is an attempted coup d'etat intercepted by Army Chief Michel Michombero. In July 1966, King Mwambutsa IV is deposed by his son, Nhare V. Four months later, in November 1966, 
army chief Michel Michambero overthrows the young king and declares himself president. In 1972, the Tutsi army murders an estimated 150,000 Hutus, including nearly all educated Hutus, in an attempt to, quote-unquote, decapitate the Hutu leadership. Less conservative sources state a higher number of victims. It's worth noting that this genocide occurs in the wake of a Hutu-led uprising in the south of Burundi. More than 300,000 Hutus will flee to safety in the neighboring countries of Rwanda, Republic Democratic of the Congo, then known as Zaire, and in Tanzania. In 1976, President Michombero is deposed in a military coup d'etat by Jean-Baptiste Bagaza. In 1981, a new constitution makes Burundi a one-party country under UPRONA, Union pour le Progrès National, or the Union for National Progress. In 1987, President Bagaza is deposed in a coup led by Pierre Buyoya. Thousands of people, mostly Hutus, are massacred in 1988, and thousands more flee to Rwanda. Alongside these cycles of political unrest and instabilities, there are signs of hope, which will unfortunately prove to be short-lived. In 1992, a new constitution providing for a multi-party system is adopted in a referendum. Consequently, Melchior Ndadaye's party, the Frodebu, wins multi-party polls in June 1993, ending military rule and leading to the installation of a pro-Hutu government. Four months later, in October to be precise, Tutsi soldiers assassinate President Dadaye. In revenge, some Frodebu members kill Tutsis and the army retaliates. Burundi is plunged again into an ethnic conflict which claims an estimated 300,000 lives. In January 1994, the parliament appoints Cyprien Hadjamir, a Hutu, as president. He dies three months later in a plane crash when his Rwandan counterpart is shot down over the Rwandan capital city, Kigali, killing both and triggering the genocide in Rwanda in which an estimated 800,000 are killed. In 1995, the massacre of internally displaced Hutus leads to renewed ethnic violence in the capital, Bujumbura, under the presidency of appointed parliament speaker, Silvestre Nibanhungaanya. In 1996, former president Buyoya seizes power. He and the parliament agree on a transitional constitution under which he is formally sworn in as president two years later. A transitional government is installed in October 2001. A ceasefire agreement had been signed the year before. Two main Hutu groups from the opposition had refused to be part of the agreement and continued to fight. 2003, April, Domitien Daizei, a Hutu, succeeds Pierre Buyoya, a Tutsi, as president under terms 
of three years as part of the power sharing transitional government that was started in 2001. The same year, 2003 in July, there is a major rebel attack on Bujumbura. It's estimated that 300 rebels and 15 government soldiers are killed. Thousands of citizens flee their homes. In November 2003, President Daizeye and Hutu rebel group leader Pierre Nkurunziza signed an agreement to end the civil war at the summit of African leaders in Tanzania. Nkurunziza's group is called FDD, Force pour la Défense de la Démocratie, or Forces for Defense of the Democracy. A smaller Hutu rebel group known as FNL, Force Nationale pour la Libération, or Forces for National Liberation, remains active in the fights. In 2004, a United Nations force takes over peacekeeping duties from African Union troops. The following year, 2005 in January, the president signs into law to set up a new national army incorporating government forces and all but one Hutu rebel group, the FNL. In March 2005, voters back the power-sharing constitution. 2006 September, the last significant rebel group, the Forces for National Liberation, FNL, and the government sign a ceasefire in Tanzania. Five months later, in February 2007, the United Nations shuts down its peacekeeping mission and refocuses its operations on helping with the rebuilding of the country. The same year in September, rival FNL factions clash in Bujumbura, killing an estimated 20 fighters and sending residents fleeing. Rebel raids are also reported in the northwest of the country. In April-May 2008, renewed fighting between government forces and FNL rebels leaves at least 100 people dead. Later that year, the FNL is officially disarmed and becomes a political party in a ceremony witnessed and supervised by the African Union. June 2010 saw the presidential election. Nkurunziza is re-elected in an uncontested poll after main opposition parties boycott the vote and parliamentary polls. The opposition had said that earlier district elections were rigged. A new civil opposition called Alliance of Democrats for Change is formed. 2011 November, a human rights group states that more than 300 people had been killed in previous five months, including opposition party members or members of former rebel FNL. The group also accuses the government of restricting media and political freedom. In June 2013, President Nkurunziza approves a new media law, which critics condemn as an attack on press freedom. The law forbids reporting on matters that could undermine national security, public order, or the economy. The following year, 
In March 2014, the Parliament blocks a government attempt to introduce changes to the Constitution seen as threatening the balance of power between the country's main ethnic groups. 2014, in April, Burundi orders a senior United Nations official to leave the country after a UN report warns that the government is arming its young supporters ahead of the following year's elections, a claim which the government denies. Almost a year later, in May 2015, the Constitutional Court, amid reports of judges being intimidated, rules in favor of President Nkurunziza's decision to stand for a third term, which was highly questioned, even deemed unconstitutional. Protesters take to the street, and tens of thousands flee the violence. An army officer's coup d'etat attempt fails. July 2015, President Nkurunziza wins a controversial third term in the presidential election with 70% of the votes. One opposition leader describes the polls as, quote-unquote, a joke. In January 2016, President Nkurunziza threatens to counter the deployment of external peacekeepers after the African Union announces plans to send in 5,000 troops to protect civilians from escalating violence between the government and rebel forces. 2016, in March, with the political situation showing little sign of improvement, the European Union announces that it is suspending direct financial aid to the Burundian government. According to the United Nations, more than 400 people have been killed and over 260,000 have fled the country in the years since the violence broke out over Mr. Nkurunziza's plan to run for a third term. In August 2016, Burundi rejects deployment of a UN police to end more than a year of political violence, saying that the plan violated its sovereignty. Two months later, in October 2016, President Nkurunziza signs into law a bill which will see the country withdraw from the International Criminal Court. March 2017, former Tanzanian President Mkapa, in his official capacity as the mediator, tells the UN Security Council that he could not bring together the government and the opposition. The UN Security Council states that it is disturbed by reports of torture and forced disappearances in Burundi. In October 2017, Burundi becomes the first ever country to leave the International Criminal Court, and in November, the International Criminal Court judges approved the opening of a full investigation into alleged crimes against humanity in Burundi, where at least 1,200 people have died since 2015. As a conclusion, Although this backgrounder on Burundi seems lengthy, it's a much abbreviated version of many cycles of violence, broken systems, and the lack of competent leadership, which have led thousands and thousands of Burundians to flee their native country over the years 
in search of safety and better opportunities for their families. Unfortunately, countless lives have perished as a result of those cycles of conflicts. As a reminder, please consider supplementing this backgrounder by listening to episodes three and four of this podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this bonus episode following the end of season one of the Hometown Podcast. We hope you'll stay subscribed and share the Hometown Podcast with your friends. Stay tuned for some summertime episodes.